I'm Edaena Salinas, software engineer and host of the Women in Tech Show, a podcast where we talk about what we work on, not about what it feels like to be a woman in tech. For more information about the show, go to wit.fm. Natural language processing is used across many different systems that people interact with. It can help us extract information and get insights from data. Tamar Solorio, assistant professor at the University of Houston, explained what natural language processing, or NLP, consists of. We talked about how systems use it and different approaches of implementing it. Tamar explained how NLP is used to determine the author of a text and some applications for this system. In 2014, Tamar was the recipient of the Emerging Leader Abby Award. Abby Awards are presented by anirabi.org a global nonprofit with a goal of reaching 50-50 gender equity in tech by 2025. Abby Awards honor and celebrate women who have led innovations and made a notable impact on business or society through technology. This episode is part of a series of shows that highlight the work of previous Abby Award winners. For more information about Abby Awards, go to anirab.org. Before we begin with the interview, I want to thank MongoDB for being a sponsor of the show. MongoDB is one of the most popular databases used across many modern applications. This May, they're hosting an event in New York City called MongoDB World. This is a three-day educational conference from May 4 to May 6. With over 100 sessions, tutorials, and workshops, you can grow your technical skills in MongoDB. There will be sessions about database sharding, transactions, aggregation, and more. Other sessions will cover topics in product management, diversity and inclusion, career paths, and more. At MongoDB World, you'll be a part of community events like meetups, networking, and mentoring. Check out MongoDB World on May 4 to May 6 in New York City. They're also giving you a 40% discount on a ticket using the promo code WITSHOW. That's W-I-T show. To get a ticket, go to mongodb.com slash world and use promo code WITSHOW. Thanks, MongoDB, for being a sponsor. Tamar Solorio, welcome to the Women in Tech show. Thank you. Happy to be here. You work in research, specifically in natural language processing. I want to begin by talking a bit about this area. From your experience, what does natural language processing mean? It means we write computer programs that can take as input human language, which can be either in a spoken or written modality. And then our computer programs process this human language to do something useful. For example, machine translation. It's a classical, very well understood application of uh, the things we do in natural language processing. Or your uh, smart devices, when you talk to them, your Alexa homes, your Alexa or Google homes, or your uh, Siri, right? The computer programs that take the voice command and turn it into something actionable that your device can understand and execute. That's also part of what we do in natural language processing. So you would say currently, since we're using a lot of systems, that natural language processing has become something that's widely used in systems we interact regularly with? Yes. 
So the progress we have made in natural language processing, which is also influenced by progress in other artificial intelligence areas, such as machine learning, has made it possible to use NLP and AI approaches in everyday devices that we interact with regularly, yes. I know NLP is also a broad field and there are various approaches to this. In general, though, what would you say are some of the main components or basic components of NLP models? I know earlier, for example, in your definition, you're mentioning we're taking human input language. So it sounds like there's a data set involved. What are other components of these models and systems? So an important component of most NLP systems nowadays is a machine learning component that today is mostly based on deep learning. And so we will take the input process it in such a way that it's available or ready for input to this machine learning algorithm and the machine learning algorithm will execute, predict, or make the uh, generate the language sample and then we release the output. In between those, so, so the core of it is a machine learning or deep learning model, but again, there are some other components like pre-processing of language input and then the post-processing, right? Once the machine learning algorithm makes a prediction, then we, you either have to do or have to use a um, speech synthesizer to generate the output in spoken form or you know, the written version of the output. And by pre-processing, you mean that the data needs to be changed in form or something? Yes. So we need to transform it in such a way. So sometimes the pre-processing is, for example, cleaning up the input or reformat the input so that it's ready for the next step in the pipeline. What about the post-processing step? What is, for example, one thing that changes in post-processing? It is very application-dependent. So what I mean with processing is, um, say, we take, again, the example of a spoken dialogue system that you use inside a smart device, right, to, to use voice command. Then from the voice, you transform that into a version that can be processed by your machine learning algorithm will interpret the command and will predict or select one of the many possible actions that your smart device is supposed to do. And then it will have to give a response to the user. And so that response, if it's again voice command, it's a speech synthesizer that will generate the spoken version of what the machine learning algorithm is, has decided that is the best response in this particular scenario. Got it. And in this area of NLP or natural language processing, you've done some research and some work around authorship analysis. Can you explain the idea behind this? What is authorship analysis? Yeah, so I've been working for many years now on style modeling of text. So one of the things that, you know, earlier work before, before the type of work we do in LLP became prominent, people started to look at some type of write print from authors and having the assumption that there's something unique in the way we write that you can actually try to extract the characteristics of the write print in order to determine different aspects of the writer 
So, and there are different versions of this in authorship attribution, for example, the task is you have a set of written documents and you want to predict the identity of the person that wrote the document. But there are other cases where you may not have enough information to predict the identity of a person, but you can extract other useful characteristics. For example, you can predict the native language of the person that wrote the document, their educational background, for example, it's another, the gender. Age can also be something that you can do with profiling. But my curiosity, my scientific curiosity on this is more related to how can we model these different styles because I also think, tend to believe that the type of reading that we like is related to the style of the authors in the books. And so we can sort of identify and extract the styles in books that we like, then maybe that also helps us identify other books that we would like to read. I see. I'm curious about the first application you mentioned is based on a given text, we, if we have enough data, can identify the person or the author. What's an example of an application where this would be useful? Well, some versions of this are potentially useful cases are with legal cases where authorship is being disputed or, for example, someone is taking credit for someone else's writing. So you can think about, you know, this computational models might help provide evidence in, in something like this or plagiarism as well. When someone is, again, taking bits, maybe not claiming authorship of entire documents, but taking bits of writing, and this has happened, you know, multiple cases. And so these type of methods, again, can help provide some evidence in those cases. There are some forms of cybercrime, like cyberbullying, for example, where this could also help. Like if someone is targeting via an online forum another person, and because most of these online sites allow people to post anonymously, it's, it's hard to trace back the person that is behind some forms of cyber attacks. And so this could also help in those cases. Yeah, so I guess for that one, the I don't know, but I think the way that it could also be helpful is people, like you're saying, are creating a lot of anonymous accounts. So they could be creating one, bullying people, and then that account gets canceled, and then they create another anonymous one. But I guess a system could find that this other new account has similar language, right? And sort of uh, lead to this person being blocked? Yes. So we have a real case scenario where we were applying our authorship attribution approaches a while back. And this was for suck puppet accounts in Wikipedia. So it turns out that for some articles in Wikipedia, there's a lot at stake. Like, for example, some articles can be turned political. And there's a lot of discussion, side discussion on Wikipedia forums about the content of these articles. A lot of debate about whether this is this is actual true or this is or this article is portraying you know information that is not accurate. And so it happens that some of the people that are involved in this can create these sock puppet accounts. So they create fake accounts with a different name in order to get involved into these discussions and sway the discussion into their favor. So we collect the data from sock puppet cases. Wikipedia has a process to detect these cases. And then they are eventually resolved as a true sock puppet case or not. And so we applied our, our methods in that and, and figure out a process so that we can have very reasonable prediction accuracy on, on this data set. 
And the second application that you were mentioning is identifying some influence and style based on books the person has read, right? You're saying this eventually can show up in the way that you're writing. And I think what it sounds like there is that you'll be able to build some sort of recommendation engine. Yes. So in fact, uh, a while back, we were collaborating with a startup in Silicon Valley. They were uh, interested in commercializing a technology like this. And so the idea was that you know a lot of recommender systems today heavily base their recommendations on what users that look like you have liked in the past. So if you they sort of have a profile of you and they say, well, you are very similar to this set of users, this set of users like these products, and so we're going to recommend you those products as well. And this company wanted to do content-based recommendation where... In the scenario they were interested in is say you have a book that you recently read that you like and you want to find a similar book to read next. How do you find that? And so this was all based on style, the writing style in the authors. That was the idea. I see. You went to school in Mexico and you did some of the research there. I'm really curious about the state of natural language processing applications in a different language like Spanish. What was your experience in this? So in general, the technology for natural language processing is skewed towards a handful of languages. So English, of course, dominates what we do in all the technology that's available as well as the computational resources. Spanish is not as bad as other languages but it's still lagging behind uh, with respect to what is available for Spanish and instead of the art technology. And so there, Mexico has very strong, very good researchers working on natural language processing, but because we don't necessarily have the linguistic resources in terms of data sets that are annotated for Spanish, a lot of them also work on English. So... <laughs> So even if you are geographically in a place where Spanish is the main language, it doesn't necessarily mean that researchers over there are going to only work on Spanish. There's a lot of other background challenges when you want to do that because, you know, developing technology for a language other than English has some challenges in terms of how hard it is to get accepted at conferences and so on and so forth. I see. And you would say one of the main reasons is because of the data sets. There are not a lot of significant annotated data sets in Spanish? Yes, you don't have the same number of resources in terms of variety of data sets, but also the sizes of the data sets that we have today available for English, for example. Okay. So it's much easier to do research on those data sets that are already available. What about language differences? For example, a lot of the research, like you said, has come from English data sets and models have been built, approaches have been found. Do these approaches work on a different language, even though the structure of the language can be different and things like that? Can some of the things be generalized? So some of them are generalized, but it depends on how close languages are. But even another dimension that is important is also the domain of the data set, because it could even be the same language. But if your model, say, for example, was trained on newspaper articles, and now you want to apply your model on Twitter data, 
then even if it's the same language, you're not going to get the same performance. There's a lot of uh, differences in how people write when it's a newspaper article and how people write when, when it's Twitter data, right? So there's grammar is more fluid in social media. You have a lot of acronyms. You have a lot of smileys and emoticons that you don't have in newspaper articles. And so that will be a challenge for the models. In addition to your research, you're also working on creating a stronger NLP community in Latin America. Can you explain some of the initiatives that you've worked with before? So uh, one of the things we did in collaboration with another professor here in the U.S. with Ted Peterson, a while back, we organized a workshop for Languages of the Americas that was co-located with one of our main conferences. So one of the main barriers that I see to integrate researchers across the Americas and even researchers across other typically underrepresented regions is how the scientific communities work in different regions and how researchers that are in different communities are going to be evaluated and assessed for promotion and all of these things that we care about too, right? They're important. And so the with communities or yeah, countries like Mexico and other regions of Central South America as well, not just Mexico. What happens is that conferences like the ones we we go to here in the U.S. are not top priority or they're not considered as um, important achievements of your research. Whereas in the U.S. and other regions as well, these conferences are very selective, very competitive, very hard to get published in those conferences. And so it's a huge achievement. But so, because these other regions prioritize differently, then they tend not to come to conferences like those. And so I think there's a little bit of isolation between the communities that, um, for me, it's important to try to address. And so the workshop had the idea of bringing researchers from these regions to to the main conference and also to a um, uh, co-located workshop so that we got to meet and talk to each other. And uh, we got support from the National Science Foundation, which was great because another barrier as well is the limited travel budget that some of these regions tend to have. And so we provided travel money for researchers in those regions to come. And um, hopefully we got together. It was a nice workshop. But regularly what I try to do is I, I try to stay in touch with people, researchers from those communities. I try to collaborate with them. I try to recruit students as well, because I think that if we build collaboration breaches or exchanges of students, I also think that that will help to bridge the gaps. But that has different success rates. So sometimes I, I'm able to bring someone, sometimes yeah. it's really hard. But yeah, I tried, you know, that, that's one of the, the things that I have as a goal, just to keep um, making it easier somehow. So I'm very, very happy to see that for the very first time, our major conference, one of our major conferences in NLP is going to be held in Mexico City next year. Oh, that's great. I didn't know that. Yes. So, so we've, we've been pushing for it. I've been very vocal with our community. and um, But unfortunately, it's not up to me, right? The decision is made up <laughs> by a committee, but, but I've been trying to, to, behind the scenes, to push for it. And... Um, Finally, next year, we're going to be in Mexico City. So that's very exciting to see. Because then researchers in Mexico 
and again in other regions may find it easier to travel and get to Mexico City it's cheaper and you don't have the same visa issues that you will have if you wanted to come to the U.S. Yes, exactly. Before we finish, I want to talk about an Abbey Award that you won. In 2014, you were the recipient of the Emerging Leader Award. How did getting this award impact you? It has been a great influence in terms of uh, me getting more visibility as a researcher, especially recently with the initiatives that the Anita Borg Institute has encouraged or, or launched recently where Abby winners will have uh, sessions at the Grace Hopper Conference. It's just, you know, a lot of good things have come in terms of visibility. I think the most important one is, is increased visibility for myself. What would you say to people that are thinking of nominating someone or maybe even themselves? I will say go for it. I will say that the committees have, you know, a set of criteria they will look for. And I always tell people when they say, well, but maybe I'm not ready for this. I'm not ready to go for that position. I'm not ready for it. I say, you know, you should not be the one that is dictating whether you're ready or not. You leave the committees. You leave that decision to the committees. You apply. And uh, you let the committees determine that. And nominating I think it's really important, nominating someone, but also nominate yourself. But if you know someone that is doing great things, that encouragement from someone else has a lot of positive influence on the person you want to nominate. Even if they don't make it for the award, I think the fact that someone else considers them worthy of applying for this can also have um, beneficial effects in terms of reassurance, particularly for researchers from underrepresented groups, I think. One last question that I always like to ask the guests of the show is, what would be some general advice that you would give to young professionals? It could be, you know, career-oriented, or it could also be about life in general. Is there some advice that you can think of that you could tell young professionals out there? I always recommend people to have a plan on where they want to go, where they want to be in five to 10 years, and then do a list of the things that you see other people in that position having in terms of career-wise, and then start aiming to get those achievements so that you will make it there. But in addition to that, I also think it's very important to know yourself and know what makes you happy. Happiness is a very personal concept, and I don't think a career should be a priority. I think happiness should be a priority. And in order to be happy, maybe part of it is career success. But maybe there are other things that also make you happy. Spending time with people you love or doing the things, the activities that you love and bring happiness to your life. And so if you know that, if you know what is your balance in terms of these different aspects that we have to pay attention, then you plan so that you're acting accordingly, not disregarding some things for others. I think balance is hard, but when you know yourself then and you prioritize your well-being and your happiness, then everything else will start coming into place. Well, Tamar, thank you for coming on the show. It's been great chatting with you. Thank you for having me. 